You have your Bibles, hold them up. If you have a Bible, hold them up. How many of you read ahead in 1 Peter? Tell the truth. If you read ahead, wave it. I see a few waving. That's good. If you didn't, no condemnation. That's fine. But you hold in your hand the sword of the Spirit, the very inerrant Word of God. And um, I, I I love Simon Peter, period, because he's so much like you and me, right? He messed up. He stumbled. He made mistakes. But he got back up again and kept on going. And I just so appreciate the Bible being transparent with us about this man. Now, let me give you some background first. Peter wrote his first letter. There we go. There it is. Peter wrote his first letter sometime, and I have it up here on the screen so you can follow along. You don't have to, but if you want to, there it is. Uh, Peter wrote his first letter sometime between A.D. 64 and A.D. 67. It was in the year A.D. 64 that a terrible fire had swept through Rome. It destroyed three of the 14 districts into which the city was divided. Nero, who was a devil, was responsible. But he used the church as a scapegoat, placing the blame on the church. He then launched a terrible persecution against God's people, one of the worst they ever experienced. Life became dangerous For all believers. And it was likely during this time that Peter and Paul were both martyred. Nero committed suicide in AD 68 at the ripe old age of 32. In the 14th year of his reign. Now one year before his suicide in AD 67. War broke out between the Romans and the Jews. Which finally led to the terrible destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. As predicted by Jesus himself. Remember Jesus said not one stone was going to be left upon another in the temple. He predicted the total destruction of Jerusalem. Remember he looked at Jerusalem and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And so he knew that Jerusalem was going to come to an end. Now, this isn't up there, but when Jerusalem was destroyed, it was awful, folks. It's hard for us to imagine how bad this was. Over a million Jews were slaughtered. Think of that number in those days. The rest of the Jewish people were scattered to the four corners of the earth where they would remain until 1948 when they became a nation again. So the dispersion of the Jews in AD 70, the regathering of the Jews as a nation, as a nation in 1948, All fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later on in the message. Now, Peter's first letter, the one we're getting into tonight, is first written against the backdrop of a rapidly changing world where old landmarks were being removed and Christianity was in crisis. It was being attacked from without and it was being attacked from within. First Peter was written to comfort the Christians. Second Peter was written to caution the Christians. First Peter was focused on the persecution they were experiencing from without. Second Peter was focused on the attack they were experiencing from within from false doctrine. It's hard for you and I to imagine the danger false doctrine was back in those days. And again, as we go through this series, I'm going to be touching on it a lot, a lot more. But deception was everywhere. False teaching was everywhere. 
people misrepresenting Jesus and teaching against who he really was. It was everywhere. So it's all coming in this series. Now, Peter wrote his first epistle from Babylon. But his heart was breaking for those who were going, going through the terror of these times. He knew also that his own earthly journey would soon end because Jesus had told him so. Don't you remember when Jesus looked at him and said, Simon, you're used to going where you want to go. Now I'm paraphrasing. You're used to going where you want to go and doing what you want to do. But Peter, the day is coming when they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And they're going to do with you what you don't want done. And then John tells us that Jesus was speaking of his martyrdom. I, I get a kick out of it because Peter hears this prediction about his martyrdom. He turns around and looks at John, who's standing there, and says, what about him? What about him? And I love what Jesus said. Jesus said, what is that to you? Follow thou me. In other words, Peter, mind your own business. Because, you know, everybody's call is different. And so John was the, the apostle who lived the longest. He lived at least to 90. The rest of them were martyred. All right? So anyway, Jesus knows how we're leaving this planet, every one of us. Now, he knew his own martyrdom was coming. Second Peter 1.14, when we get into Second Peter, we're going to find him telling the church, I'm soon putting off this tent, the tent being his body. So he knew his end was coming. Now, much like his master, Peter had learned to use powerful word pictures in his messages. So we're going to notice in the first letter phrases like, as sheep going astray, as newborn babes, as lively stones, and so forth. All similes. You know, a simile uses like or as, okay? So those are similes, as sheep, as babes, as stones. Now, we should keep in mind, as we read this first letter, the personality of Peter. He was the big fisherman, an impetuous, bigger-than-life, dynamic figure of a man, natural leader. We should also keep in mind, as we go through this letter, the preeminence of Christ. Because Jesus reigned large in Peter's mind and in his writing. Of course, it's not his writing. We do understand. The Holy Ghost moved on Peter. Uh, the Bible says, Scripture came to us this way. The Holy Spirit moved on men of old. And they wrote as they were born along by the Spirit of God. So it's Peter's writing, but it's the Holy Ghost leading him what to write. It smacks of his personality, but it's also the inerrant Word of God. Amen? Amen? He had known the Lord as few others on earth. He had lived with him, walked and talked with him, even shared his home with him. Can you imagine that? Which room do you want, Jesus? Got a nice guest room here. How many of you would give him the master bedroom? Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense, right? Now, finally, we should all uh, also keep in mind the persecution of Nero as we read 1 Peter. This diabolically evil man haunts this book. He was the personification of Satan, the roaring lion's tool, seeking whom he may devour. All right, that's just a little introduction. Let's begin. Chapter 1, verse 1 begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, you hear a lot about apostles these days. Let me tell you what apostle means. It's real simple. Apostle means sent one. That's it. Sent one. There's nothing mysterious 
or gigantic. About, it just means sent one. In New Testament times, they were members of a unique and exclusive order. Church, remember this, never to be repeated. There's never going to be anybody like the original 12. All right? They had, and here's what made them unique. They had known Jesus during his earthly ministry. Paul was the only exception. He didn't know him during his earthly ministry, but he, he was exceptionally and particularly and uniquely called out by Jesus later. But aside from Paul, the apostles knew Jesus during his earthly ministry, walked with him, talked with him, slept where he slept, walked where he walked, ate what he ate, knew him, watched him, touched him, listened to him, saw his miracles firsthand. They had been eyewitnesses, not only of his ministry, but of his resurrection from the dead. There were 12 of them. Although the courtesy title is extended in the New Testament to one or two others. Again, Paul was not of this original group. His ordination was bestowed upon him directly by the ascended Lord, but he was the exception, not the rule. Now, of the original 12, Peter was the obvious leader. In the various lists of the 12 in the New Testament, Peter always comes first. Whenever the 12 are named, Peter is first. The apostles were the custodians of the gospel. They were the men originally entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the teachings of Christ as delivered by the Holy Spirit. You know, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you start thinking, well, how in the world did they remember all of that? How did they remember to quote Jesus directly? Well, Jesus tells us uh, in John, in John's gospel, he says, the Holy Ghost, when he comes, is going to bring to your remembrance everything I've said to you. So as they wrote down, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John recorded the gospels, it was the Holy Ghost bringing to their memory everything they had heard. So it's inerrant. It's the act of the Holy Ghost. You hold in your hand a totally supernatural book. Amen? There's no book like it on earth. I know I harp on this a lot, but I'm going to tell you there's no book like the Bible. Not any book like the Bible. It's the only book on earth, not from earth. It came from the Holy Spirit of God, came, came from God himself. Now, um, the apostles were the custodians of the gospel. The teachings of Christ is delivered by the Holy Spirit. They performed great miracles, wielded enormous power and prestige in the early church. Now, Peter's target audience is in uh, the second part of verse 1. He says, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, notice the dispersion. Remember when Stephen was martyred? It says when Stephen was martyred, there was an incredible persecution released and, and unleashed against the church. And they were dispersed. They went everywhere, the Bible says, preaching the gospel. So when he says the dispersion, he's talking about those who had been in Jerusalem but were dispersed to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And as we read those areas, those regions, um, they, are, they mostly comprise the Roman province of Asia Minor. And we tend to associate these regions with the ministry of Paul. But Peter must have gotten wind that they were also experiencing fallout from the terrible persecution unleashed by Nero. Now he starts getting heavy. Here we come into some theology. Verse 2. Everybody say elect. elect. 
Now he's talking to these persecuted believers who are under the gun, under the heat, feeling it, whose lives are in jeopardy daily, and he calls them elect. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now let me just deal with these. These are, these are million-dollar theological words. Elect. We who believe were elected by God according to his foreknowledge. Now let me tell you something about God. I've said this a lot in the past. God never says, oops, and he never says, well, I'll be. You know why? Because he's never surprised. Now, here's what we need to get from this verse. I want you to just pretend there's a door right here. And on this door, as I'm facing it, the door says, whosoever will, let him come. Whosoever will, let him come. So I hear the gospel, and I go, I'm a whosoever. And so I'm convicted of my sin. And so I'm going to walk through that door of salvation. It's the door of salvation. Whosoever will, let him come. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that's on the front of this door. So I say, sounds good to me. I'm a whosoever. I'm convicted. I need Jesus. So I reach for that doorknob and I turn it and I walk through and I shut the door. And on the other side, it says, I knew you were coming all the time. I knew you were coming all the time. Okay? So... Everybody say foreknowledge. So when you got saved, heaven wasn't shocked. Some of your friends were shocked. And some of them are still in shock of what's happened to you. But God wasn't shocked. God says, I knew you were coming all the time. Now let me blow your mind with something. He chose you in him before the world was laid. Before the foundation of the world. He chose you in him. Now you can get into some pretzel, mind-twisting stuff when you get into Real meat Bible theology. Because God knew you were coming before he said, let there be light. Think about that. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's too heavy for my brain. I'm telling you, that's heavy stuff. Before he flung the stars into space or scooped out the oceans, God knew you were coming. He chose you in him, that is Jesus, before the foundation of the world. He knew your name, knew what you'd look like, and he had a purpose for you before time began. Paul said those words, before time began. Before there was time. He had a plan for you. Now I could sit and think about that all day long, and it's still hard to get. Amen? But I believe what the word of God says. Now, When he says elect, he is, let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying some are called to salvation, the elect, and others to damnation, the non-elect. That's not what he's saying. If you want to get into hardcore Calvinism, now you might have heard that phrase, Calvinism. Part of Calvinism says that some are called to be saved and some are called to be lost, and, and God can do what he wants with people. Now, I have a problem with that. Here's my problem with that. I have two problems with it. One, it doesn't jive with love. How can I love somebody I'm damning to hell? Okay? How can I love somebody who I am deciding is never going to be saved? I can't. Second problem I have with it is there's so many verses that say otherwise. Whosoever will, let him come. Here's this one. It's not God's will that any perish. 
but that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. So I have to believe that everybody has an opportunity to be saved. Are you with me? Everybody. So when he says elect, he's not saying, those of you that I'm writing this to who are saved, you're saved because you were elected and your next door neighbor may not be elected, so he's damned. That's not what he's saying. He's saying through God's omniscience, which means his all-knowing, he knew you would come to him. So he planned or elected ahead of time for you to enjoy the benefits of salvation and ultimately eternal life. That you would be, as the verse says, sanctified by the Spirit, which means set apart, called out of the world, out of the sin of the world, sanctified, and saved by the blood. All right? So he knew you were coming all the time. That's what the other side of the door says. I knew you were coming all the time, so I had this, this, and this planned for you ahead of time. Amen? If I invite you to a party and you are SVP and you take me up on it, I, I, set, I get my house ready for you to arrive. Because I sent you an invitation and you chose to take me up on the invitation and you have RSVP'd and now you're coming to my house so I have prepared a banquet for you. And when you walk through the door, I'm not shocked because you already RSVP'd and I knew you were coming all the time. All right? Amen. I love the Bible. I love the word of God. Isn't it beautiful? Now, verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's so good. Let's say it together, can we? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, in a teaching like this, you're going to find as we go through this that I'm going to take certain words and I'm going to tell you what they come from in the Greek language, what Greek word they were translated from, what that Greek word means. We're going to learn a little bit of Bible here, okay? You're, you're going to learn a little bit of Greek. Is that okay with you? Yes. All right. I'm, I'm going to make you smart. Go, go to a restaurant afterwards and throw a Greek word at him. and say, I learned that at Turning Point Church. All right. So, so I love words, and words matter. And so here's some powerful words. He says... According to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again. Now, the word begotten is new birth or born again. And being born again has given us a living hope. Now, I thought of something, and this blessed me. When you study the epistles of Paul, John, and Peter, the main writers of the New Testament, you see that every one of them had a favorite, had a favorite word. Paul's favorite word is what? Faith. I mean, here Paul, everything Paul talked about was faith. And then John's favorite word is what? My little children, love one another. For love is of God. And he that loves is born of God. All right, there's John. And then Peter's favorite word is hope. So we have, from those three apostles, we have hope, faith, and love. And those are the Bible's favorite trilogy. Peter calls our hope a living hope as opposed to a dead hope. It's a living hope. Hope always has the future in mind. A real good definition of hope is confident expectation for good regarding the future. 
So when you've got the Bible kind of hope, it's based on the promises of God. And when your hope is based on the promises of God, it always has to do with your future being in God's hands and God having a good plan for you. What did Jeremiah write in one of my favorite verses, 2911? I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a what? And a hope. All right? So God says, I'm, I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about you. And when you came to my son and you were born again, begotten to a living hope, then you came into my plan. And so I'm thinking about you. And here's what I'm thinking about you. Not evil, but I'm thinking good thoughts to give you a future and a hope. Now that ought to excite you. That means no matter what the devil tries, no matter how he attacks you, God has a plan, and his plan is a good plan, and he's going to work out his plan. And even though the devil might hit you hard, might knock the breath out of you, might take you down to the ground for a little while, you will get back up because God has a plan for you, a good plan. So everybody say living hope. It's a living hope. The believer's great hope is for a triumphant rapture to glory. Or a mighty resurrection from the grave, either way. I'm either going to be on earth when he comes back and I'm going up immediately. Or I'm going to be in the grave and I'm coming out of the grave. Either way, that's a living hope. Amen? It's a glorious living hope that carries us through this troubled world. And that's the, the gist of Peter's words to these persecuted, threatened, under the gun people. He says, you've got a living hope. You need to know the day is coming when you're going to be called out of the grave or you're going to be yanked right off the earth. And so I want you to walk in the reality of that hope and never let it fade from you. Living hope carries us through this troubled world. And it lifts our spirits in times of trial. Amen. Now he next describes our future inheritance in verse 4. He says, to an inheritance incorruptible. Boy, I love this. Your inheritance is incorruptible and undefiled and that it does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. I could preach on that one right there the rest of the night. That's a great one. Let's look at some of these words. The word inheritance comes from a Greek word used for inherited property. If you were living back in the first century and say you were dealing with a will and you had inherited some property, they would have used this word. They would have used the word for inheritance that Peter uses, the word for inherited property. See, you and I, in Jesus Christ, have inherited heavenly property. Amen. Amen. We call it glory, or we call it heaven, or we call it our future home. But it's inherited property. See, heaven is not on a cloud. Heaven is solid. It's real. You're going to walk down streets of gold. You're going to live in a place Christ built for you. You're going to walk. You're going to talk. You're going to be sent on missions according to the word of God. Uh, But it's, it's an inherited property. You're going to have some space that is yours. That's the idea. And this glorious new world that we're going to one day is going to be free from natural disasters, free from wars. 
think about it. No more fighting. No more war. No more bloodshed. No more crime. No more need for police, though I love police. No more need for law enforcement. Because there won't be any law breakers. Amen? What I love is all carnivorous activity between animals will cease. Animals won't devour one another anymore. The Bible says the lion will lay down with his favorite meal and not eat it. The lamb. The lion will lay down with the lamb. And the Bible says a little child will play around the den of a poisonous snake and won't be bitten. There will be no more enmity between creatures and men. See, I love, I love God's creation. I love animals. I love birds. I feed the birds every morning. You know what I wish I could do, though? Just whistle, and they would come and land on my arm. I wish I, wish I could, but they won't. You know why? Because of the fall. The fall put enmity between them and me. Now, they'll trust me a little bit. They got, well, they'll get real close to me, but there is a caution, and there is a fear. They, they're smart that way because human beings, a lot of human beings will hurt them, but... When Christ comes again, all of that is gone. All the enmity will be gone. It'll be peace. You'll walk up to a lion and say, let's go for a walk. Amen? Amen? The Bible says in Isaiah, deserts will blossom like a rose. Crime will be no more. All people, says Habakkuk 2.14, will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters now cover the sea. You know what that means? Every human being will have maximum knowledge of God. Isn't it vexing out there? You can go out there and talk about the Lord, and people don't know the first thing about God. It's amazing. You can talk about anything. If you notice this, you can talk about anything. You can talk about politics. You can talk about the Cowboys. You can talk about the Rangers. You can talk about the Mavericks. You can talk about anything with people, and they'll carry along a conversation with you. But you say Jesus, and something goes up. And and they become immediately irrational. And there is this inability for the normal human being out there who does not know the Lord, there is an inability totally to talk about Jesus. They can't do it. Satan has their mind in such a headlock. They are so blinded. Satan has their mind in such a death grip that unless the gospel penetrates it and prayer tears down those strongholds, they, they, they cannot talk about Jesus without getting all befuddled and convicted and, and bumfuzzled and wanting to walk away quickly, as quickly as they can. But when Jesus comes, the entire world will be filled with maximum knowledge of the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? So you go up to somebody and say, God is good. And they'll say, oh, all the time. And you can talk about predestination and elect and foreknowledge and all those things, and everybody will fully understand the deepest theological concepts. I love it. But it gets better. Peter also says, not only is it an inherited property that we've got, but Peter says it's going to be incorruptible, which means incapable of decay. What a blessing. No more trash. No more mold, no more rust, no more wear and tear. 
Things will no more break down, fall apart, or crumble. There will be no more decay. I've been in my house that I'm in now for 27 years. I can't believe that. But you know what I've realized? After 25 years, everything starts breaking down. It's like everything was built to last 25 years, and then it all starts breaking down. Every time I turn around, I'm having to replace something else, fix something else. You know why? Because we're in a world, now here's a big word, it's called entropy. Entropy is the second law of thermodynamics, if I'm remembering correctly, entropy. And what it means is everything in the world is decaying and eroding. Everything. So that, that, that kicks evolution hard. Because evolution says everything is getting better. But the second law of thermodynamics says everything is decaying and rotting and falling apart and digressing. So the two don't get along. I'm going with entropy. Evolution's not real. I can tell you entropy's real because I'm living in a 27-year-old house. (laughs) And everything in it is decaying and rotting and I'm having to replace things. But in that new heaven, that new home, where we have an inheritance, our own plot, there will be no more decay. Amen. Amen. So we won't need Home Depot. (laughs) Where I feel like I live lately. I walk in, hey, Mr. McGuire, hey, how you doing? (laughs) Me again. Where's the plumbing section, you know? Then he says, it's undefiled. I love these words. Okay, it's inherited property. It's incorruptible. And it's undefiled. Now, that's a very different word from incorruptible. The very same Greek word is used to describe our great high priest. He's undefiled. It means free from contamination. Free from contamination. Uh, The devil attacked Jesus viciously on earth, yet he remained uncontaminated. He touched the leper, but he remained uncontaminated. He touched a corpse, which you weren't supposed to do. Yet Jesus remained uncontaminated. Our new home will be free of all moral and spiritual filth. I think of the words of James. If I can remember them, he says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the widows and the orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. All right? That's uncontaminated. That's sanctification. The work of the Holy Ghost in you and me is to, we're in the world, but he's going to remove us where we're not of it. That is, we're not contaminating ourselves all the time by the sin of this world. That's the work of sanctification. And it's an ongoing, lifelong process. Paul said, faithful is he who calls you who will also do it. And part of the it he's saying God will do is sanctify you wholly, body, soul, and spirit. Okay? So everybody say uncontaminated. Uncontaminated. Have you noticed how hard it is to wear white in this world? (laughs) I have some white jeans. I love white jeans. I like, you know, especially in the summer. I've given up on wearing them. I can't get to the car. Something's on them. (laughs) I can't get to the car. Something's on them. And by the the end of the day, I'm self-conscious because there's all kinds. You can't keep, you know, have you noticed in our world, you don't go out in it and get cleaner. You go out in it and get dirtier. The world doesn't clean you. The world dirties you. But in in our new world, there will be no contamination, no more dirt, no more moral, physical, or spiritual filth. It will all be gone. 
You can wear all the white you want. And then I love this. Peter says our home will never fade away. Well, I love that. Everything on this earth eventually fades away. It wears away, falls apart, rots, decays, crumbles, but our new heavenly home is going to be made of the stuff of heaven. It will never suffer wear and tear. Now, remember with me the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, store not up for yourselves treasures on earth. And what does he say happens to treasures on earth? Where moth and rust do what? Corrupt. And thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. Where moth and rust don't corrupt. And where thieves can't break in and steal. Jesus, right there, talking about the same thing Peter is, that we're in a place that never fades away, that is as good a thousand years from when you first arrive as it is when you first arrive. It doesn't fade away. It's eternal. It's an eternal home. It's an eternal home. Eternity is a really long time. Right? That's a long time. I used to struggle with it. Eternity, I know I'm going to get bored. I know I'm going to get bored. But you know, there's so much in the Bible about how God, the Lord is going to task us to do things. We're going to be not working, not like now, don't get me wrong, not sweating, but we're going to be tasked with things that are divine and glorious. We're not going to float around on a cloud playing a harp with wings, getting bored in the first hour, right? It's not going to happen. That's not heaven. No one and no thing will ever steal away from you your heavenly inheritance. It is reserved and preserved. Now, let me just deal with that last word, reserved. Here, Peter just ends this verse with an incredible promise. He says, it's reserved in heaven for you. Through the blood of Jesus, you've got a reservation. How many of you are glad when you go to a restaurant, you've got a reservation? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it an incredible feeling to push through the crowd and walk up to that waitress and say, I've got a reservation. (laughs) Oh, give me your name, Jeff. Ah, yes, you called. Come right with me. And I just love walking past the waiters, (laughs) those that are waiting. Because I had the sense to get a reservation. But listen, if you are covered in the blood of Jesus, you've got a reservation. You've got a reservation. He said it's reserved in heaven for you. It's from a Greek word meaning kept, guarded, and preserved. Literally, watched over. God is watching over. Nobody's going to get your reservation. Nobody's going to get your reservation. Let me also add, you've got the reservation. Not your kids, not your mama, not your daddy. Listen, to get into heaven, you've got to have your own reservation. You can't get there by grandma's coattails. You can't get there... By your daddy's coattails. You've got to get your own. As soon as you come to Jesus and say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Come into my heart. And you walk through that door. Whosoever will let him come. You walk through that door. You're handed a reservation. It's reserved in heaven for you. Your plot. Undefiled. Uncontaminated. Kept in heaven. Watched over by God. Everybody say, I'm blessed already. 
Amen? All right, gets better. Verse 5. Who, that's you, are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, the word kept here is a military term. It's the word used to describe how Paul's enemy, the governor of Damascus, kept the city of Damascus under armed guard, hoping to lay hands on him. Just an example of how that word was used. It's a military word. But see, your reservation and you, you are being kept by the power of God. Everybody say, I'm not keeping me. He's keeping me. See, the one who saved you is the one that's going to keep you. The one who saved you is the one. Jesus said, no man plucks you out of my hand. The one who saved you is the one who keeps you. And the one who's going to escort you into glory when that day comes. But what exactly, how is he keeping us? He tells us, by the power of God. See, we've got an invisible angelic bodyguard all around us, as well as God's Holy Spirit within us. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe if our eyes could be open right now, we would see angels in this place. And around the building. Today, many of you were guarded and protected by an angel, and you didn't know it. See, we are kept. Peter tells us. We are kept. How? By the power of God. That can only be angelic or the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the two powers. Angels, power of the Holy Spirit. I've often said that born-again believers walking under the Lordship of Jesus are invincible until their time comes, and I really do believe that. You can't be taken out until it's your time to go out. Peter knew whereof he spoke when he said, you're being kept by the power of God. When Herod threw him in prison, remember, intending the next day to kill him, as he had James, says the angel of the Lord appeared that night, struck him and woke him up and said, stand up quickly, get your shoes on, we're leaving. And an angel walked Peter out of prison. I love this. The gate opened as they approached it. Peter the whole time thought he was dreaming, thought he was having a vision. And then the angel led him through the main gates and into the city streets. And then the angel, it says, disappeared. And Peter went knocking on the door of the people who were praying for him to be delivered, and nobody believed that he was there. So we're like, hey, we're praying for you to be delivered, but we don't believe you've been delivered. They wouldn't even let him in. He had to keep on knocking. It's me. But my point is, how was he kept? Until his time came by the power of God. It was angelic. And it was the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter was invincible till his time came. And so we are kept by the power of God. How? Through faith. Peter says that this great salvation in which we stand is ready to be revealed. Now this phrase comes from the Greek word apocalypto. That's the Greek word, apocalypto, and we get apocalypse from that word. And it means an unfolding or an unveiling of what has formerly been hidden. That's why the book of Revelation is called the, the apocalypto, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because things that had normally and formerly been hidden are suddenly made known to us how the last days are going to end. How it's all going to go down. 
That was hidden until the apocalypsis, the revelation, was given to John. It points to the time when Jesus returns. Here's what John wrote. Behold, he comes with clouds. Every eye will see him. They also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth will wail because of him. You know why they're wailing? Because they're realizing it was true. Even so, amen. Now, Peter said, you're being kept by the power of God through faith for that hour when Jesus comes again. You're being kept. Notice he used the word ready. He used the word ready. Ready to be revealed. Ready. This word suggests that everything is prepared for end time events to begin. It's all ready. God's grace is still being extended to a wicked world. He's not willing that anybody would perish. And that's why he's tarrying. And he's holding everything back until that last person. And only he knows when the last person comes in. But there will be a last person. There will be that one person who is the last person. And then God will close it all out. And Christ will return. The Bible says in Colossians 1.17, In him, in Jesus, all things are being held together. Literally, the atomic structure is being held together by the word of Jesus. Everything is awaiting his return. And everything's ready for it. Everything's ready for it. Now Peter, not Paul, that's my typo. Now Peter uses the expression, notice, the last time. Ready to be revealed, he says, in the last time. Now that takes us back to Genesis where we find that phrase used the first time. The expression, the last days. It first occurs when Jacob was dying and he called all of his sons around him, including Joseph. And he prophesied over all of them. And he said, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you when, everybody, read it with me, in the last days. That's the first time you hear that, find that phrase, last days, in the whole Bible, right there. So Jacob has a heavy spirit of prophecy on him when he gathers his 12 sons around him. And he speaks something over every one of them, totally prophetic. And he, he's reaching all the way. He, he's seen down the tunnel of time by the Spirit of God, all the way to the last days. You find that expression 14 times in the Old Testament, 13 times after Jacob says it. Now, according to Scripture, the last times begin with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Hebrews says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So the last days began with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The last days began then. Amen. So we've been in the last days a long time. Now, I believe we're in the last of the last days, and here's why. Primarily due to the fulfillment of the prophecy I've already mentioned tonight regarding the restoration of Israel as a nation in one day. That was a huge prophetic fulfillment. And... My understanding of prophecy is when they became a nation again, the prophetic hourglass was turned upside down. 
And the last of the last days began to fall through in the sands of time. Israel became a nation in a day. It was a total fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah wrote, who has ever seen anything as strange as this? Who ever heard of such a thing? Has a nation ever been born in a single day? Has a country ever come forth in a mere moment? Israel did in 1948. In the meantime, God's people are being kept by the power of God through faith in anticipation of the great unveiling of Jesus Christ to the world. And I want you to think of how our faith, as we experience it here on earth, not only carries us through troubles and trials, but it reaches into the future to lay hold of God's promise of the return of his son in a brand new world to come. Amen? Amen. Now next, Peter returns to this present, these present trials that we all experience every day and the trials that his, his readers were also experiencing. Verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you are grieved by various trials. So Peter takes us from the glorious return of Christ back down to earth to the reality of Nero's persecution and that the world was a very dangerous place for the Christian. And he talks about how they're being grieved by various trials. Now, I don't know what you're experiencing here tonight, but I venture to say more of us than not have at least one trial in our life that is grieving us. At least one. The word for grieved means sorrow or heaviness. Peter is not acting like bad things aren't going on. He's not denying reality. He said, you're being persecuted. You're being grieved. You're being tested and tried. I get it. I'm, I hear you. I'm with you. But he is saying we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. We have an incredible future coming, the return of Christ and his mighty kingdom. And in this, he says, you greatly rejoice. So faith not only sees beyond the temporal side of life, and soars beyond the temptation side of life, but it also sings beyond the testing side of life. Amen. Verse 7, he said, here's what's going on with your testing and trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now look at that word genuineness. That comes from a Greek word meaning, after having been tested, it proves to be the real deal. He's saying, your faith is being tested, Christians, I get it. Nero's out to get you. You may not see another tomorrow. You're feeling the heat of red-hot persecution. You're in a real test of your faith. But he said, here's what God is doing. He wants us to see what God is doing through it. Here's what God is doing through your trial. He's proving and testing and refining your faith. So that when the testing is over, because, you know, joy comes in the morning. Weeping endures for a night. But there's always joy in the morning. There's always a dawn after the night. He says when it's all said and done, God is hoping and God is looking to see if your faith was the real deal. Did it survive the trial? Because what God is doing in your trial is he sees a precious faith emerging from the fiery trials of life 
like the fire melts the gold in a furnace so that the refiner can skim away the dross. So persecution and other trials enable the Spirit of God to purify the faith of the suffering saint. So that when you come out on the other side, you're stronger, you're deeper, you're wider, you're higher, you're better, you're more like Jesus. You are refined. You're purified. Amen? So Peter is all about wanting us to see not what we're going through, but what we're going to. And what God is working through the trial. Now I love verse 8. We're closing with verse 8. Whom having not seen, you love. Agape is the word used there. Whom having not seen, you agape. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now here's the miraculous work of the outpouring of the Spirit of God into our hearts. That having never seen the Lord personally, yet we agape him. How is it that you and I tonight are slap happy in love with a Savior we've never seen? Come on, everybody. Have you ever stopped and think about it? I've never seen him, never touched him. He's, I, I've been touched by his spirit. I know him, but I've never seen him standing in front of me. I've never hugged him. I've never walked physically with him like this, and yet I'm in love. I'm in love. How can that be? Doesn't that sound kind of crazy? So who are you in love with? I've never met him. That is, I've never seen him in person. Really? And you're in love? I'm absolutely in love. See, the happy willingness to love him sight unseen on the testimony of Scripture alone and the witness of the Holy Ghost to our hearts that we're children of God is going to be rewarded one of these days when we see him. I was thinking today, our experience on that great day of his appearing is going to resemble the Queen of Sheba who had heard about Solomon from a far distance away. She'd heard about him, all these things about Solomon. She had heard from a distance. But when she finally met him in person, she said, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and your prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. When we finally meet Jesus, we're going to say, oh my, the half was not told me. Amen? The half was not told me. Let's stand together, can we? Next week, we're going to talk about your scripture. Tonight was your salvation. Next week, your scripture.